thank you to everyone who is helping us with our transcripts. You're doing a great job helping us make sure they're published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out with publishing, just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com. That's H-E-Y or H-E-J. UX Podcast Episode 259. I'm Pat Axboom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 198 countries and territories in the world, from Benin to Montenegro. Rishma Hansel is a UX designer working with implementing technology-based learning strategies in language education in Tokyo, Japan. She's written some really enlightening and interesting articles on Japanese UX and web design. Originally from Trinidad and Tobago, Rishma is not herself from Japan, but has over the last five years been immersing herself in the culture and language, making her a suitable mediator for us to begin to dip our toes in the uniqueness that is Japanese design. Yep. And stay tuned after our chat with Rishma for our post-interview thoughts and reflections. I was reflecting on the, on, on a, on the fact that is it maybe with us who live in um, and work in countries with a Roman alphabet, um, is that kind of something that we get lost in that world of Roman alphabet and we kind of push away and we kind of don't really understand all these things that are in different alphabets? Um, and, but I don't really know if that's maybe just how it is with that lens that we have from where we are, because that's, that's where I live and work. But how does, so to me, Japanese design and websites look very different. How does it look from, from your side? So uh, I think one of the biggest things is just how much information you can receive in a very short number of characters. So in Japan, they use three types of scripts. So kanji, which comes from like the Chinese traditional characters. Um, And those are more like uh, picture graphs that contain so much information in just one character. And then there's uh, the hiragana and katakana, which are the Japanese alphabets, uh, alphabet forms that make their own uh, set of words. And when you put all of that together on a website, you can share so much information. Whereas I feel if you're looking at a website in English, everything's you have, you know, a bold typeset to help you know, pinpoint certain information. You have really stylized text designs that kind of give you the feel of what maybe this article is about or what this brand is about. Um, but looking at it with the eyes of someone who can read and understand uh, Japanese characters, it's more the information that you can get with all of those various alphabets combined into one. So I, I, didn't, I didn't realize at all that the information density was 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 such a thing because, I mean, you're saying that this what these three different sets of of characters are using together is is the Roman alphabet used on top of those three as well? No, in traditional like in the Japanese newsprints, you would rarely ever see the English alphabet. Uh, it's always uh, they use the katakana when they are writing foreign words in Japanese. 
So right, okay. yeah, <laughs> so it's like the it, some some of them even sound very English. So in English we would say hamburger, and the Japanese alphabet would say hamburger. So you can mm. pronounce it using uh -huh. the Japanese phonetic. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there's not so, even a so need to English words. <laughs> no, but well, branding, of course, I guess is still right kind of company brands and yes. things. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. But so so when we're looking at uh, if we're looking at a, we a Japanese website, then where some of the some of the things that maybe we would um, perceive as r headlines mm -hmm. are maybe even more like sentences, I guess, to us. Yeah. Oh. Yes, and there's there's something really interesting about about how much information a, a Japanese person wants on a on a website, which for me it kind it kind of shifted when I moved to Japan and started to realize okay they want to know a lot of things up front. The customer journey is really different. In Japan, they want you to disclose as much product information from the get-go. Like as soon as you open that gate, let me know what am I getting into? What are the materials? Who designs this? Where does it come from? Whereas I feel in the West, we're very much, you know, a visual. Like we want to see those pretty images, like scroll through maybe those 3D <laughs> renderings where you can rotate it. And we want that before we go into things like product reviews and, and the manufacturer, stuff like that. That's really interesting. Uh, but that also means that if there is more information density, we don't always catch on to that. So there's actually more space to have that information up front as well. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there's, yes, the, well, I mean, some would argue because uh, when I look at a site, I'm like, okay, there doesn't need to be that much stuff going on. But at the same time, it's what the user feels is the is most helpful for them when making a purchasing decision. For me, I, I just have to go back to that because something that blew my mind was that there's no bold, there's no italics. <clears throat> yeah. And that made me wonder about fonts because font choice is really important <laughs> in Western design uh, and you were talking about how you can actually design the different letters in different ways but how would that work because you couldn't go oh do I choose a, a sans serif font or a serif font because if you add serifs it's not the same letter anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, well <laughs> there are there are different ways that you can style uh, the Japanese letters um, in in this in the same way that we might choose a different typeface or maybe increase the size of it rather than uh, like make it make it bold. Uh, but on my Medium article, I use the example of the Apple website. So they do the similar stylistic elements just using the Japanese text. And the weight of the text is probably what people are looking at more so than the stylistic element, uh, because some of those traditional, like some of the old Japanese bars here, for example, use really traditional kind of calligraphy style writing uh, that I've asked my Japanese friends and they can't read it. It's like it's so old school. They don't even know what it means, but it's cool. And it, it signals to it signals to the patrons that, OK, this bar serves, you know, a certain type of alcohol geared towards a certain, a certain type of crowd. So in that way, I think there are similar type styles just executed differently. You mentioned the Medium article that you wrote there. Um, and in that as well, you've, you've talked about um, or refer to the, the contrast between um, the, that simplicity of Japanese design, product design. We've got the you know, clean looking things with you know, nice colors and very stylized and calming almost. And then when you kind of land on a Japanese website, 
it's it's kind of like you've just been dumped in the middle of Tokyo and you're going, oh, what? Which which again feels like a, a, a fa- that's just a fascinating um, you know paradox f- f- with uh, with my European eyes on it. Uh, that, yeah, that's how I felt when I got off the plane, uh, because you hear about Japan as being, or in the media, in movies, you see it as this very futuristic, you know, um, this alternate reality world where there are robots and everything's very high tech. But the backdrop, the backdrop of that is a very traditional uh, culture steeped in a lot of these um, values of like harmony and you have like Zen Buddhism and watching those two realities play out simultaneously is that exact experience of going into Muji and buying this very sleek you know there's no text written on these packaging at all it's so clean but you go onto a website and it's every word in the universe that is presented to you <laughs> at the same time. Um, but it, it works, I think. I think the people that are living here in Japan and they talk about the age group, the age demographic, like there's a high, like a large percentage of their online users are over 60. And in that way, they try not to change too much about what you, what you experience online, on the web, on their apps. They try to keep that, you know, as formulaic as possible so people can always find the information that they need that's relevant to them oh that's that's really interesting so they i mean i think a lot of us will be aware of the fact that japan has an aging demographic it's one of those things that gets thrown out in in articles and and media quite often um but are organizations themselves very aware and very respectful of that aging demographic so when you're doing design in Japan, is is that something that you're, you really are? It's an active decision, active um, conversation about not changing too much because you have respect for the, the ones who've been with the design a long time. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. That's something that is on the forefront of people's minds because that is, that's the user that we have to think about when designing for them. And it's almost as though they try not to change too much too quickly. It is a very slow, very progressive uh, way of doing design, especially online design here with a lot of their apps and websites. It's very small changes that you see happening incrementally over time. Uh, you would you would rarely ever see a brand uh, totally redo their entire interface or their entire uh, online branding and it being totally different um, when you when you look at it. I think that's, you know, in part to the fact that a lot of people who are using these websites go to it expecting a certain thing. In the same way with, with products and, and the retail experience in Japan, you go into a store expecting it to work in a particular way. And when it doesn't, there are so many other places you can turn to <laughs> for that information. That sounds actually that you have a more focus on usability in Japan than my experience is in most Western countries where you do change a lot. And I do, I mean, I do lots of talks about accessibility. And one part of that is the constant change of payment systems and how you buy tickets on the bus and everything is changing so fast. And so what you're saying is that there's actually, it's actually part of the culture to not change that fast. Yes. Yes. And for some people, like when I first arrived, I found it a little bit frustrating. You know, I remember the first time someone asked me to use a fax machine. I was very upset. I was like, what? what? I was like, Excuse you? 
<laughs> I'm like, hold on, let me let me let me go back to the '90s real quick. But but the, I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's the thing. That's that's what they like. A lot a lot of those systems are still in place and they phase out. But it takes quite a few years before before that happens. And in that time, you have the old and the new coexisting. So people are learning and adapting at. Uh, they're adapting better, but at a slower rate, I would say. So I've used a lot of those um, kind of like online online systems. When I use the subway, it is so accessible. When I came to Japan, I didn't speak any Japanese, nothing. I, I, I only had pictures and colors and my UX background to figure things out. And it worked really well, really, really well. So that's that's just a sign that... <laughs> usability is working i guess you get um it gives you space to consider maybe the details i mean going back to what you said about like um simplicity and and, and some of the some of the small details of things that when you're rushing to do big changes yeah um, as per said we we seem to still a lot of the time do these massive changes um excluding maybe amazon who would be mm. one of the ones that have been you know very japanese in their approach with yeah. <laughs> keeping a very similar website for an awful long time but um but as a designer then do you do you feel that you you do get kind of like more space to breathe and to kind of um tinker i guess or tweak the designs than have to do a kind of like you know 1000 wireframes for an entire new redesign yes yeah i definitely think so there's not there's no ever massive overhaul of something we are not taking everything apart and putting it back together again and making it new it is one or two things that we look at at a time um, and how we can improve that how we can make that better and i think with that kind of laser focus on one particular function or aspect of a product or service. That's how Japan seems to be excelling so much, you know, globally with their innovation in tech and in AI and in, in services. Um, it's looking at what what isn't working so great or what can work better and focusing on that, fixing that before jumping into the next thing or redoing everything and then looking at what went wrong, how we can make it better like that. Um, on, on another note as well, I find that approach has done well for customer loyalty. There's a lot of brand loyalty in Japan. People really, you know, you choose a brand, whether it be anything from milk to, <laughs> to shoes to an, uh, like a certain piece of tech, and you stick with that for the rest of your life. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think that loyalty comes a lot to where the, the customer just feels feels connected and feels like they're growing with the brand rather than the brand growing so fast that they can't catch up with it. Right, so the yeah, because the, yeah, the familiarity that they can build with something that is stable yes creates a stronger attachment than than something that becomes unrecognizable <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, and and with with Japanese people having, I think, one of the longest age age groups. Like, I mean, I know quite a number of centenarians here. So, if you are loyal to a brand, yes, I want you to be loyal for one hundred years and more. Yeah. So here in Sweden, we have we have a lot of we have a lot of older people as well. Already, yeah. we've demographic. People live a long time in Sweden, um, and 
I'm not sure though if we can make the same analogy between Sweden and Japan no, in that sense. No, not at all. Exactly. Yeah. That's so so fascinating to hear. Well, but it's also because we change more here. So I mean, so we can't really test it because I, I mean, even our I mean, public sector companies they change logos and they rebrand and they're totally different and they have they have this tone of voice and it it changes. So it's much harder to be loyal, of course. Then something I picked up on. Also, is what I would call a sense of humor, but you didn't call it that in your article because I loved the frogs. So oh, the, the frogs, the, the yeah. frog-shaped construction signs, and it that was also so so enlightening to me because I mean, in most countries, the construction signs or even the the roadblocks would be just big blobs of concrete. <laughs> but what I was seeing in your article is that they were frog-shaped and yeah. green and cute and fun to look at. Yes. <laughs> Do, do you and that you... to me is it, is like that is what I get the sense of. I get all these impressions, and they make me feel good. And mm. there's a sense of humor there. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like that you that you call it a sense of humor. I didn't think about it like that, um, but <laughs> but yeah, a, a lot of it is re- it is really funny. It does make me chuckle. Um, do you use the word kawaii in Sweden? Like when you talk about things that are very very cute, of the uh, like. My my daughter probably would, but she's really into um, okay, uh, yeah. Japanese culture just now. But I I wouldn't. <laughs> you you wouldn't. You wouldn't say, "Oh, that's so no. kawaii." <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Um. Well, yeah. So kawaii is is Japan's word for cute, but it it is it is a lifestyle, um, which I had to learn about the hard way because I thought it was reserved for children, um, and I thought it was only to be used in in ways that were purely aesthetic. Uh, but then you get frog construction signs and you realize that you can be a construction worker and you can be kawaii. And it is <laughs> it, it just ranges um, so many different things in, in Japan. Um, but it's more about making people feel relaxed, making, making something feel friendly and inviting and familiar. Uh, and, and it's used so effectively in situations where you are scared or anxious or confused, you know, doing you know, with 30 million people in Japan and you are on a commute and something goes wrong, that will ruin the rest of your day. But seeing little frog signs or, you know, when you go to a doctor's office and there are cute friendly soft looking creatures <laughs> on the forms or design like little icons that are cute it does it does psychologically make you make you feel calm so the, the, the thing there though i guess is that japan has managed to um retain that acceptance of, of playfulness and cuteness into adulthood so the culture allows for that so we can't i guess we can't and if we wanted to apply this in in the UK, for example, then we couldn't just suddenly start rolling out cuteness. Yeah. I, I, I presume. But couldn't you? you? But couldn't you? I mean, I, I mean, I would love. I mean, you you would have small kittens on your health declaration forms at the doctors. I mean, lots of people would love that. Yeah, but I think at the same time, a lot of people would be kind of putting on the old stiff. British upper lip and say, oh, that's, that's not very British. Now I'm being stereotypical about my own country, but um, or one of my own countries. But it's, um, it, I think it's 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 interesting to look at these cultural aspects uh, that are so deeply rooted in Japan. But uh, I think we, we maybe would have to be careful about how you could apply them and roll them out in other cultures because 
you know, that's not something you can do with just releasing a new version of a website or an app or something. You'd have to work on it for, for decades probably to embody that cultural aspect of it all. Yeah, uh, I remember I had a conversation with my Japanese friend and uh, I asked if she ever watched E.T., and she said, mm-hmm. she said, no, E.T. is terrifying. I'm like, what do you mean? A, a, lo- a lot of people think, you know, they, oh, he's so cute, such a cute, friendly alien. And she said to me, she was like, oh, I've been living in Japan for so long. My standard for cuteness is very high. And E.T. is disturbing. <laughs> you know, so. That's such a great example. Wow. <laughs> Says so much about where we are on the scale, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, I started showing her other things. I'm like, look, look at this little, you know, like, oh, look at a gremlin. Is it cute? You know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. So they have a really different scale for cuteness, I think, than the rest of the world. Something I, I, I've, I've um, heard is, uh, yes, the cuteness seems to last into adulthood. But with the language, there there's a different thing, isn't there? Isn't, there, isn't the language used by children a, a bit more distinct from the language used by adults? It's kind of a, you know, with the complexity and simplicity and things. Yes, yeah. Uh, and and Japan has a, a hierarchy system with their language. So there, there are levels to politeness um, in in the language. And in terms of UX, like when we have to write text for an app, we have to use the most polite because we're talking to our users, our customers, um, they pay the bills. So we're not going to refer to them informally. Um, It's just that... You have to build in respect because you you have to show respect for your customer. Exactly, yes. Um, And there's even something as well, when you take the bus, there's a tiny little bus stop bell that you ring and the amount of text they squeeze into that tiny bus stop bell is... (laughs) is fantastic because it's the polite form of like please dear customer if you press this bell the bus will stop for you thank you for riding with us you know whereas in other countries it just says stop it's just (laughs) s-t-o-p stop it's so lovely though i mean it makes you think of all these things that we're we take for granted and you realize it's so rude we are being so rude to each other every day while they are being polite yeah. Uh, one of my Japanese teachers made the comment. She was like, I, I apologize for something. She's like, no, no, no. You are disrespectful by nature because it's just like in, in English. I don't have the, like, I, I wouldn't know, you know. And I, she's, oh, like, wow. she's like, it's just, it's just your nature. There's no, there's thank you. There's thank you very much. Hmm. And there's, oh, thank you very, very much. But, you know. That's it. Yeah. But, okay. So, so, I mean, there's bound to be when we talk about different cultures, you always have to be careful. And I think, I mean, you were touching upon it. You were being prejudiced about your own country, James. Uh, but I think when I started out in web design, I got all these, uh, went to all these seminars where people were talking about colors and what colors meant in different countries. And and some were saying, well, in Asia, white means death, and so don't use a lot of white. And I always thought that was really stupid because I mean. What so you have a white piece of paper and you write on it and you give it to someone and that means death? No, it doesn't. So I mean the 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 advice being given, of course, was really weird and strange back then. Mm. So, but w- what types of myths have you come across that just aren't true for Japan? About about design or about uh, yeah yeah can be design can be anything really, but myths or prejudice or, or things that you, you you really strike you as a naive. Um, I th- I think probably it has to do a lot with that kawaii aspect of things 
Um, I think for me, I definitely underestimated how 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 powerful a tool it was. So when I saw things that were kawaii and cute in Japanese design, I really thought that that was only for a certain subset of the population. I didn't realize how, what a powerful emotional design tool that was. Um, and I didn't realize that you can roll out... Uh, roll out cuteness across the board, you know, from the private sector to, you know, government institutions and how key it was in helping people relate to certain set sets of information. Uh, Japan has a lot of earthquakes, as you know, and uh, there, you know, yeah, only yesterday was the anniversary of the massive 2011 earthquake. Um, and when I got my evacuation manual and guides, all of those things could be potentially very, very terrifying for someone who comes from a, from a country where I don't have to worry about major earthquakes. But the way in which all of that information was presented was, was using those colors and patterns and images and graphics and cartoons and illustrations and anime styled, you know, cover your head, put on your helmet, you'll be okay. And I thought for, my, uh, for a moment, yeah, I can do this. I'll be okay. You know, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and, and now, now I've come to just grow to love, to love how that can be such a powerful tool. So if you're a designer being dropped into Japan, where do you start? What's your last piece of advice for, for anyone what to learn more about? I would start by spending at least, you know, your first week in Japan observing. Sit on the train, uh, sit in a restaurant and just watch. Japan, Tokyo especially, is a playground for UX designers. You can observe, you can play with different machinery and technology and enjoy and watch how people of all ages interact with products down to you know buying things in the supermarket opening packages at convenience stores um yeah just be just be an observer and i think you learn a lot that way i'm really looking forward to going <laughs> me as well yeah hopefully it'll happen soon when they when, when things open up again and allow us to travel, mm. then mm. I'll be looking forward to observing and um, taking in all of the cuteness and complexity and, and fascination of J Tokyo and Japan. If I'm here, give me a call. I'll give you a grand tour of the city. <laughs> <laughs> we awesome. Will do. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Rishma. Thank you for having me. So one thing there is I've I've just learned a whole load of words beginning with K. Wait, wait, wait was it kanji, um, katakana? I don't know if I'm saying it properly or not or correct. <clears throat> and then um, kanwai, ka, kanwai, kanwai, yeah, kanwai, oh, exactly the, the yeah <laughs> the the culture of cuteness. I did check with my um, daughter, and she wouldn't say that word to describe something as cute. She knows exactly what it is. And she, mm. you know, recognizes things about it, but she doesn't use the word as a as a as a thing to describe cuteness. Okay, okay. right. Uh, doesn't answer that. Uh, and then um, something we didn't mention, but we talked about, was kaizen. So the the, con mm. the culture of continuous improvement, and there's been books written about this over the years, going back to the seventies, I think. And we we talk about it in 
um, with like um, Toyota, the example of where they, they have the production line and they're encouraged to stop the production line if they notice something that can be improved or something's wrong. And then they, they make small... Oh, so Kaizen is that thing of continuous improvement and making small incremental changes rather than wholesale complete changes. Exactly. We talked a bit about this when, when Rishma said that changes, they, they, they take years and there, there are no massive overhauls. It's always the small changes that take precedence. And that's, but that's then Kaizen and that culture of continuous improvement of small improvements over time is, you know, we try and adopt that. You know, we're reading these books and we kind of, you know, say we're going to try doing this. But isn't that just a case of we're, we're adding a, a Kaizen layer on top of a culture that's not properly prepared to take it on? Isn't that really interesting that we didn't actually use the word during the interview because the, using the word is part of Western culture in describing what it is we do, mm. whereas in Japan it's already embedded in how they work, so don't ha- they don't have to mention it. It's it's just the way things are, mm. which means that we're exactly exactly that. What you're saying is we're trying to force something that isn't part of our culture onto something uh, that then won't work as we anticipated because people just don't think that way. Yeah, or it's going to take a lot longer to to. But you know, build that culture of continuous improvement. Then maybe a lot mm. of these change management programs and and drives inside organisations to make us work like that are um, you know prepared to admit. Right. So so now I'm thinking. So what are we learning here really uh, when we're talking to Rishma is that countries are different and cultures are different. And of course, there are differences within countries. We have to acknowledge that as well. So it's not we're not saying that everyone in all countries have a specific culture, but. Uh, it doesn't mean we can adopt everything just off the bat. Uh, it does mean we can be inspired by things that others do. And also that we need to recognize that when we introduce things in other countries, we need to be really respectful and understanding. And really, uh, we would preferably should listen first before introducing something in another culture. That's And this is a really, really interesting aspect. I mean, um, if we think about how many times over the years like I've been involved in in rollouts of like you know international websites and so on in a whole series of country sites for mm. a, for a, like a Swedish brand a Swedish um, international organization and the the way we do that is you have a design often designed here in Sweden um, and then you translate it yep. and it gets translated um, into all these different regional markets mm. um it doesn't get redesigned it doesn't get you know, specifically take, you know, designed for a particular market in, in, you know, in a detailed way. At best, it is just the words that are changed. And hmm. uh, I mean, we've talked about culture and that aspect um, you know, a few times before over the years and how it's better to, to allow local organizations drive these kind of things because they know the local market best, which is, exactly. fits into this about culture. But it's still, I think, a lot of time just down to translating the words. Hmm. I mean, one simple example of that that I've come across so many times, of course, is that a lot of the websites I've worked with have also been translated to Finnish. Mm. And the Finnish language has really long words, which means that a lot of the things that are supposed to fit in one button take several rows in that button. Mm. And so it just visually doesn't appear the same. But also just thinking that we can just translate the words and that will come across in the same way in another country 
I think we're fooling ourselves all the time because that's that's not how language works. Yeah. And I think that's what really the types of insights we got from Rishman now is that language can be so different and even the letters and writing can be so different in what they convey. Yeah, exactly. So that thing when we, we think about, let's take Twitter. It's a, it's an American product based on mm. American cultural values and cultural um, um, perspectives, which has become global. Mm. They, it, it, it takes no prisoners when it comes to, you know, it makes no adaptations for, for localities, really. It, yeah. it allows you to translate tweets. But again, we're back to that brutal, just this is a word, that's another word which matches it, which doesn't. <laughs> so if we take um, Rishma's example of the bus, uh, the bus stop button that says stop, hmm. you take the word stop in a tweet. How do you translate that to its true meaning without the context and the, and the, and the understanding of the culture that lies behind the words? And, and some words will have so much meaning because of events that have occurred that are part of history in that particular country. So mm. just ch- translating the word and not actually understanding that the word can itself c- contain so many connotations, mm. that itself can be dis- disrespectful, actually. Mm. And the, and the, um, the culture aspect of, of needing, of, of, or the information density, like we mentioned, that, mm. you know, that's something you can't just translate. You, you, can't, you can't translate um, information density from one country to another. It has to be designed has to be catered yeah. for. So we're, we're, we're brutally kind of like steamrolling our, um, you know, American English-based um, designs across mm. the entire world. We are, we're not really taking that time or we've been, been prepared to um, take on the, the initial cost of understanding the impact in these other cultures and what you can do to make it work better. Yeah. But it actually does make me think a lot about how cultures are different within countries as well. When we were talking about that form and we were joking about how we could add kittens onto a form, kawaii style, uh, we're saying that, well, in some countries that won't work. Well, for some people in those countries it will work. Mm. But actually then we are saying that we're always steamrolling over someone because we're deciding that this works for the most amount of people in this particular culture or country. So we're always putting aside someone that might have appreciated something that's really funny or cute because it won't work for everyone. Oh, absolutely fascinating! Culture is um, mm. is a uh, never is a never an uninteresting subject to dive into. <laughs> Very true. I know you picked up uh, an episode for uh, listening to next. Yeah, it, it's a really really recent one. Um, mm. Episode two hundred and fifty five, which was our chat with uh, Margaret Blumstein. Um, about yeah. trustworthy and um, brand voice and, and how you'd go about contemplating, thinking about how your brand actually should communicate or should be com- communicate with your customers and services and so on. And it, it felt, even though it's recent, it felt really relevant to go back and listen to that again now after we've discussed and thought about um, these cultural aspects and how it differs so much. How do you deal with that then um, from a brand perspective? That's a really good one. Yeah, like that. Show notes and a full transcript can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't get to them directly from wherever you are listening. And um, click follow, subscribe, add us, or whatever you need to press or do in your culture or language or whatever it is on the interface if you aren't already doing so. Um, And join us again for episode 
260. And if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Why did the donut visit the dentist? I don't know, James. Why did the donut visit the dentist? To get a new filling. <laughs>